And now, coming to you live from the icy wastes of Chicago, the sun-blasted shores of Western Australia, and the balmy climes of Sydney, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guests and longtime friends of the podcast, James Bradley, Gareth Garthnicks, and Sean Williams on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay! And now, now we cue the Muppet music. Uh, <laughs> or at least I'm, 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 I'm delighted to have this podcast because this is... Uh, this is the group that should have been on the podcast all the time, all along, it seems to me, because whenever we get together at a convention, we have great bar conversations, mostly about the failure of Canada to produce sea breezes. <laughs> well, I don't think you can extrapolate the whole of Canada from Richmond Hill. <laughs> Possibly not, but uh, one never knows. Uh, but at any rate, it's, it's great to talk to all of you, and, uh, and the only person uh, in this group that I have not met face-to-face -face at a bar somewhere is James. Uh, but we've spoken. We have. I yes. I didn't realize you spoke. No, we've never actually met. I thought, because you, know, you, you, were, you weren't in San Diego, Gary. No, I was not there. Oh, not there. okay. Oh. Right, right. We should oh. probably identify ourselves from our voices. This is Garth talking. That was James. <laughs> yeah, and this, this is, is Sean. <laughs> oh, no, you have another go, James. Oh, the third go. This is James. Very good. <laughs> and I'm Garth. And I'm Sean. This, we could take a lot, quite a lot of time doing this. Should we do it again? Well, we could do it again. <laughs> or we could point out that, uh, at, at very le the very least, having brought you together, you all have at least one thing in common, or one likely thing in common, and that is that you all have major new novels out this year. Or at least, I know... You know, Garth, you do. You and Sean have one collaboratively, and you have uh, Clarial. Sean ha has had uh, Twin Maker, and the, the sequel's coming out any time now. I think, isn't it? Uh, November. November. Well, that's almost like any time now for this podcast. <laughs> and James, you're on the cusp of a major book deal. Yeah, I am. I feel terrible. I, I, I don't want to jinx it by talking about it, but yes, I have almost. I'm just on the edge of having sold the new book, which is great, and I'm very excited about but it. But he can't talk about it, because he may have to kill us if he does. <laughs> if we're actually physically all in the same place at the moment, that would be a bad idea. It's more that I'm superstitious, and I think I'll jinx it by talking about it. But yes, no, I am, and it's, I'm really pleased about it. So. Am I allowed to say that it's a very good book? I think I'm You're allowed to say that. Yeah, I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, all, we're all looking forward to it. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the three of you have something uh, in common. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to raise an issue now, which is probably deadly boring because it's been overdone for all of you. Uh, but all three of you have had, uh, I think, considerable uh, influence on making Australian speculative fiction a worldwide phenomenon. You in in England, in the States. I mean, you're all known uh, uh, very widely. And is that? Um, is that a fairly recent development? There are two questions here. One is, uh, is is Australian science fiction really becoming world science fiction in the way that it should have been? Um, and is there a reason, this is the cliche question, is there a reason that for the size of its population, Australia seems to produce an awful lot of first-rate science fiction and fantasy writers? They've got a lot of dropping out there, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. We just missed the end of your question, then I think. Just the we got probably got the gist of it, possibly. I mean, um, it's it, sort of Australian authors punching above their weight in terms of the size of the country and the population. Is yeah. there a reason for that? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there seems yeah. to be an, and this has been going on for decades. Um, uh, and the other thing is that it seems to me, in the last twenty years or so, Australian science fiction has has had a much larger worldwide footprint than it had before then. Um, I remember reading a book, uh, okay, Strange Actually, Gary, Constellations. Really Gary, unfortunately, you're really breaking up, but did you guys hear any of that? No, no, about one no. Oh. Okay, mm. basically what Gary's asking, if you can hear me, is that why do you feel Australian science fiction for the past 10 or 20 years has appeared to... <laughs> this this question is cursed. You were totally clear until the minute you started speaking the question. <laughs> you're having a lend of us, aren't you? You're, you're, you're saying, now, the, the most important question you'll ever hear is... This is, this is do you new... think this is going to work really well? Colonel, we, we can't... <laughs> um, why do you think Australian science fiction has become as high profile as it has in the last 20 years is it hello no nope. yeah. Yeah, we're, we're thinking we're here um 
why has it become as high profile as it has in the last 20 years? It's a good question. I mean, I think these, there's an, always an ebb and flow in these sorts of things, and we've seen a period of flow. It doesn't mean we won't necessarily see a period where it ebbs back again as well. I guess the simple answer, you know, is the authors and the books, but I I'm not sure there's any particular rhyme or reason behind the emergence of of so many writers in the genre that is not a worldwide trend for more people writing in the genre. I don't know, James, what do you think? I don't know. Look, my experience is mostly with kind of literary trade publishing rather than science fiction publishing. But um, I suspect, I wonder whether it's got something to do with the rise, in a sense, the kind of technological transformation of things. So, I mean, there is a kind of flattening of the marketplace, I guess, which I, I, you know, presumably it's much easier if you're an Australian author to kind of participate in a world scene than it was 20 years ago, where you were restricted to faxes and uh, and kind of meeting people at conventions. Now you have these kind of networks of people operating on social media and things like that. And there seems, certainly when I deal with younger writers, one of the things that I find very striking about them is that if you're my age, and I'm in my late mid to late 40s, you know, you came up as a writer thinking you know, I am an Australian writer, I want to speak to the world, they come up thinking I'm a member of a global community of writers yeah. and the world should just listen to me, you know. And it's, it's a, it is a profoundly different way of seeing your place in the world as a writer, I think. Yeah. You're getting you, that, Jonathan? Yes, completely. Okay. I, I think you use the word community and I think that's a really important part of this. And I, the correlation is not causation, but I, I see the rise of Australian science fiction happening alongside the, the real tightening of the Australian science fiction community. So when I was starting writing in 1990, uh, Peter McNamara was was really beginning to bring things together. And then Eidolon started, you, Jonathan, uh, that community started building up around that magazine and to a lesser extent, I think, Aurealis. Uh, and the, the, the return of the science fiction convention to, to Perth and the building of that community, I think that created a not just a support network for new writers like myself, but also... Uh, a, a competition's not really the right word, but but a sense that um, mm. we're all kind of going up together. And there was, uh, you know, mm. if I could do it, then anybody else could do it. A rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, mm. that's right. I think that might be part of it as well. well. I think James's point about the technology changing, you know, sort of the scope of the community is, is very important. And certainly looking back to you know, my time uh, in, the, in the business meeting, you're absolutely right. You know, my first dealings with American agents and publishers was by fax and mm -hmm. and that incredibly sort of slow process going backwards and forwards. It's become much easier to to be published, to be read, and aside from the, the more recent global changes in, in self-publishing. Uh, so I think it's much easier to access that world community from this very remote remote location. Mm. Essentially, everybody in the world is, has the same advantage now too. So mm. so what makes Australians rise up above everybody who lives in, I don't know, South Africa or um, uh, New Zealand or... You know, but, but are we? <laughs> I think one of the things that's really interesting when you look, um, and this is outside science fiction in a sense, but if you look at the change in, granted does those lists of the 20 best young British novelists every 10 years, and what's been really striking looking at three of them over 20 years is the way that you've seen a shift in the ethnic makeup of writers, which is really interesting, you know, mm. and lots of the ones in the most recent list, which was last year, you know, I have to say, I would have thought of them as Chinese writers, you know, or Indian writers, but, you know, they think of themselves as British writers, you know, as well as, as Indian and, and Chinese writers. But there is that kind of globalization of, of literary culture, which doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that in a sense you have a global literature, but you have a kind of a, a globalised literary culture where writers move from place to place. You know, they they operate within a kind of culture. And, and, all, and, and also I mean, they, can, they can move from genre to genre. Yeah, so I think yeah. that's the other aspect. Mm -hmm. Not only you can be a Chinese-British writer who is also a literary author, but is also a science fiction mm -hmm. author who is also a fantasy author. It's the, those sort of demarcations seem to have, have have broken down to some degree. The the, the borders mm. are more fluid, so the borders, well, that was, uh, everything. Can can anybody hear me now? Yeah, yes. yeah, no, perfectly. Okay. Thank you. Something's gone because I, that, that was that was the next point I wanted to to get to is to some extent the the, the culture there is there is a genre culture which may be in some ways trumping nationalist cultures in in, in, in the sense that um, 
this has happened over a period of decades with Australian science fiction. In the last few years, I'm seeing a lot of interesting Israeli science fiction. I'm seeing, seeing African science fiction, Caribbean science fiction, Finnish science fiction and fantasy, which seems to be a very strong area. And it seems to me that one of the reasons that these, um, what we would have thought of as Finnish literature, we now think of as science fiction and fantasy. In other words, the, the, the genre identity trumps the national identity in some areas. I think I think that's absolutely true. I think generally speaking, it does. Uh, And it's one of the things that I always find interesting is that talking to readers often they presume that I'm from wherever they're from. Mm. So Americans presume I'm American. Well, sometimes they think Mm. I'm British because I write fantasy and and good fantasy must come from Britain. There's a (laughs) subset. There's a subset of people who think that. But you know, and and Brits think I'm British. Um, so it's it's always interesting the the preconception that the type of things you write mean you're from a particular place, uh, but but I think you know that genre that genre Trump does override everything else to to a large degree. I wonder whether that's shifting as well. I mean, I remember Sean when you wrote the the books of the change, mm. which have set in a clearly South Australian landscape. You're saying yeah. that they're actually quite difficult to kind of move offshore. Well, they've never sold outside yeah. Australia. You know, but yeah. you see now, you, you do see a rise, of, I mean, you see a rise of a kind of distinctly Australian science fiction. So, I mean, mm. there's the, the, the Monster Truck book that I was reading about the other day, which I, I actually cannot remember either the title or the author of, to be honest. But, you know, you you have people um, like Jason Narong and people like that uh, doing kind of vampire novels set in Australia, which... Except I would argue that they are, their, their primacy is vampire novels. Mm. They happen to be set in Australia, but they are vampire novels. I think that's probably fair. Um, you know, and I, I think that, I mean, to be honest, though, the books of the change, possibly it's, it's time to try and sell them again. Mm. Um, <laughs> I've tried to sell those books so many times. Yeah, but, but, maybe I, it's but, but, but books, they are, they're fascinating to me because they are, and I think they're terrific books, but it's also that, you know, I mean, I think Garth's right, that a lot of the Australian science fiction fantasy you see, you know, it is principally a kind of northern fantasy, say, which has got some Australian yeah. details in it or something like that. And you do kind of go, what does a distinctly Australian fantasy look like? And Sean kind of answered that question. He, he wrote something that was grounded in a kind of Australian landscape and Australian sensibility, a series of things like that, yet was a fantasy novel as well. So, I mean, and, and that is a much, I think, both rarer and harder thing to do. You certainly know. hard to write. But a lot of people mm-hmm. cite those books uh, now. It's kind of weird that uh, now... Um, the, those books are being cited as by new writers uh, writing, trying to write Australian fantasy mm. as the reason why they think mm. they're able to do it because mm. because I did it before. And these books are what fifteen years 15, old now or something yeah. like that. So it's fascinating to see a new generation of writers feeling like they can do that. And mm. that's good. They're probably doing it better than I did, perhaps. But mm. <laughs> why do you think it's been so hard then to produce stories, sell stories, or find stories? that are set in what is arguably the predominant Australian landscape, which is the urban landscape? That's a tough question, mm, Jonathan. That's one that has <laughs> mm. taxed the minds of many people over the years. But, but I, like, I, I mean, I can see I, the... Sorry, yeah. I was going to say, I suspect that with fantasy, and I'm guessing because I don't really write it, but I would guess that one of the issues here... I do a bit, but, you know, but but <laughs> one of the issues you have around writing, uh, I'm about to reveal here the issues I've had writing it, but you you try and ground it in an Australian landscape. If you are in a an American or particularly a British um, or European kind of landscape, there is a, a set of kind of folk traditions that have been revivified by literature and kind of, you know, in a sense, they're not real traditions, but they are kind of traditions you can call upon to... to, to to, to kind of use in that landscape. In Australia, they are essentially Aboriginal traditions, and I think white writers are generally, and I think for good reasons, mm. very wary of how they use them. You know, they, they, there's a cultural so, appropriation yeah, issue, it, which is a very serious cultural, uh, very serious, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that that makes it, that doesn't really answer the question about the urban. Uh, yeah. uh, the fantasy set in, in the urban Australia, which 98% of us live in, mm. 
Um, yeah. I think also it's difficult with Australia because it's kind of warm and sunny and you go to the beach <laughs> and it's, it's difficult <laughs> to imagine the spaces where the kind of strange things live. Well, because Terry Downing has done that quite successfully yeah. in some of his short stories, where a horror story set well, on a horror. bright summer day. Sure. You know, horror works in horror Australia. Works. <laughs> yeah, horror works. Wake and Fright is yeah. one of, you know... <laughs> the scariest films ever. The sc- oh, it's extraordinary. The great, mm. the great Australian movie made by a Canadian. <laughs> other two, a fantastic and, film. And, and by British, you know, mm. British... British Production but you know what his other two films are, the big ones are Weekend at Bernie's and First Blood, the first Stallone movie. Yeah. Which is a good film. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he's got he's kind of novel, got this too. really weird filmography. But yeah, yeah, the Wake and Fright, if you've never seen it, it's incredible. What do you think about people who set a, who write novels set in Australia who are American or British writers? Um that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but I, I, one of the things that, I don't think I gave an award to it, but uh, my, there's a, there was a novel decades ago by uh, Mike, Michaela Rossner called Walkabout Woman. Um, there have been a few others. One of uh, Mary Rickert's, her best-known novella, partly takes place uh, in Australia. Do you, do you see those? Do you have any sense of whether those things are poaching? I think it can work. I think it's fine. I mean, I've written plenty of books set in America, and I have no qualms about doing that. I think if somebody's going to start using indigenous, Australian indigenous cultural um, artifacts in their novels and they're not from here, I think that's a bit risky, but yeah, uh, it can be done very badly. Um, I think if it's done well, it's okay. It's all. It's like everything else. It's all on the execution. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and to be honest, the stuff that bothers us as Australians, I mean, it's a bit like when you watch the Simpsons episode where they yeah. come to Australia, which is just uh, embarrassingly dreadful. Awful. But I'm sure to everyone else in the world, it's hilarious, you know. Um, yeah. Or lost, lost when they kept coming to Australia and putting sheep stations next to oh, rock and th- terrible accents. And there's an episode of Lost where they're at Circular Quay, <laughs> and the opera house is in the background, and they're booking like a tramp fishing yeah. boat with like nets on it, and you're just like, yeah, these done not near each other. <laughs> if any of you have been in the states long enough to watch network television advertisements for a chain called Outback Steakhouse. Oh, I know, I know about it. Even from my perspective, the worst Australian accent I've ever heard is some, some <laughs> guy they, they picked out of central casting and said, and they showed him, I don't know, they showed him a Mad Max movie for five minutes and then he did this. Um, so, so there is that stereotype that remains. It's not as bad as it used to be in the States. I mean, we, we we're, we're way past Crocodile Dundee. Um, but I'm not sure what image is I think we present an idea of what Australia is to the outside world and to ourselves mm. that doesn't necessarily match up to the reality. I mean, I'm always... Although we did vote for Tony by, Abbott. Well, I didn't. <laughs> but I'm always grated by by uh, this this portrayal of Australia because it's very different to the Australia I come from. You know, I'm growing mm. up in Adelaide, like you did, James, I, I feel like Adelaide's a, a different place. And not a better place or a worse place. It just has different slang. It has different mm. kind of... It's, it's a much more British culture in some ways. But, 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 the, but these things work for all, all countries. I that's mean, right. there's, yeah. I've, I've read books by... Uh, by English authors set in the US, which don't work because of basic fact checking and vice versa. Uh, so I think I think these things are universal. Oh, yeah. That, that mm. people people don't, either don't do the basic fact checking, or they're tripped up by very small details that you wouldn't know unless you spend a lot of time somewhere. And you, and you, Google is fantastic, and and uh, you know you can Google Maps and looking at places is fantastic, but it never replaces sometimes actually being somewhere if you're going to write that sort of realist background if you want a realist background the alternative strategy it seems to me and this is this is a kind of writing i've not seen as much of as i would like but there was a 19th century french fantasy writer raymond roussel who was a big influence on later people um like uh, well eventually on ballard and that sort of thing um but alfred jarry but he, he'd written a bunch of novels uh, which are complete constructs. One was called Impressions of Africa. And in writing the novel, he knew enough about Africa. He'd never been there. He'd read a lot about Africa. And he decided that in writing this novel, I'm going to include no accurate facts about Africa at all. I'm going to make it up from scratch. If anything actually turns out to be an authentic African setting or character or place, I'm going to eliminate it. And he created a pretty good fantasy novel. Wow. It has nothing to do with the Africa we know, but... His is more interesting. I like I like the sound of that. I mean, that, yeah. that appeals on many levels. 
There's always that kind of Ian McDonald cheat that he manages in Brazil, where what you do is you write a book set in Brazil, but you make sure it's an alternative universe Brazil. So if there's any differences, you know, <laughs> that cause problems, then it's just because it's a different universe. Yeah. Or the future. You know? Or the future. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. slightly half a step, half a step aside. Mm. Uh, Does it feel? Go, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> Does it feel to you like it's harder to portray a future Australia in fiction? Uh, I, I can't think of too many really convincing instances where someone has tried to go a hundred years ahead. I mean, there's one or two, uh, and there's obviously Terry Dowling's distant future uh, science fantasy rhinoceros kind of a setting. Yeah. Uh, who does it which does it very well yeah and there's, there's certain but there's not a lot of it is there i mean I, I i find myself casting my mind back to something like quarantine uh by egan where he's forecasting a you know, populated uh, north of australia in in the far future but there's not too much in between it's almost like either not we good. veer to a fantastical portrayal or we just don't tend to think of it on the stage in the future well, there was a there was a period of it, of course, you know, George Turner and so on. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm not sure that sort of fifty years in the future stuff is being written a lot anywhere, really, at the moment. Mm. I'm just trying to trying to think where you because at one time there was an awful lot of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. major cities fifty years in the future. This is what London will be like. This is what New York will be like. You know, as part of the backdrop of of a novel. Yeah, Stanley uh, Robinson did a lot of that, of course. But uh, even that's ten or fifteen that's right. years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, James, wasn't your, wasn't the Deep Field set like just five or ten years in the future from when it was written? Yeah, I think sadly it's now in the past though. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the risk. Yes, you want not to stay in print for in, in, until its uh, due date is passed. Well, then you just add another thirty years on and re-release it, isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> that's been happening happened to a few things <laughs> apparently recently. I don't know. I think it's hard to uh, the mental exercise of, of trying to extrapolate a, a future Australia. It feels kind of self-limiting to me because I think what's interesting is to imagine a global culture in which Australia is a part. And I and I guess I'm not speaking solely for myself. I'm not particularly interested in imagining what Australia alone is like yeah. in, in 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 that kind of speculation. You know, mm. it's uh, it's part of the world and things happen here. And, and Australia is mentioned in, in the Twin Maker series, but it's not. They're not Australian novels, and I, mm. no, I, I find it, I, I don't find it a particularly fertile field of imagination, and also a very difficult one because writing fifty years in the future is possibly the hardest thing you can do if you're a science fiction. I think writer. it probably is difficult, but I, I think also if you look at uh, historical texts, that uh, that that mode has more or less disappeared. In other words, uh, from I don't know the 1870s to the 1930s, British futures were only British futures. There was almost no concern with. The continent with the United States, with Africa, that sort of thing, um, and I imagine uh, if you went back and looked at, I don't know what might have been uh, 1930s version of Australian science fiction. I think in pre-global cultures, people imagined the future as being the future of their country, and I think that's dis disintegrated in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, if not longer than that. Well, 1930s Australian imaginings would also have been British. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, people were still. People still very much, even through the 40s and into the 50s, would would call England home. People would say they were going home who'd never even been there, who'd fourth or fifth generation. And I was reminded of this. I've just been rereading all of Neville Shute, um, just because uh, I'd never read him. And I was reading a book of his, some of his later Australian books, which are all written in the 50s, and they're all very contemporary books, you know, set in the times that they were written. And there's people still talking, and I think quite accurately. I think he was mm -hmm. very accurate, you know, um, in his portrayals. People are talking about going home to England, <laughs> which is a bizarre concept now, but it was it was incredibly prevalent. And even when I was a child, you know, we still sang God Save the Queen until, mm -hmm. you know, I was eight or nine when all of a sudden, you know, we had a new Labor government and things mm -hmm. changed. Uh, so mm -hmm. that, that, that view, I mean, in terms of the history of Australia and, and Australian imaginings of the future, up until the 50s, I think Australian imaginings of the future were very tied to still being part of the of, of the, you know, the British Empire. I, I suspect also that you have, and I, look, I think this is a problem in mainstream fiction and science fiction, is 
imagining what a completely media-saturated future looks like is something that, in a sense, people are only... You know, the rise of social media has been rapid and quite recent. And mm. I think a lot of people are still trying to get their heads around how to represent that. I mean, I actually think one thing that's really impressive about um, Sean's Twin Maker books is their rendering of a kind of social media landscape, which just feels kind of right, you know. Um, and you actually don't get a lot of that. I mean, I think finding a kind of, I guess, a kind of imaginative grammar to talk about that stuff. Charlie Strauss does it, I think. Look, it's, certainly it's being done. I'm not saying it's not, not yeah. being done, but it is one of those things where, and I think also at a kind of plotting level, all that stuff about the immediacy of the movement of information makes a lot of the kind of stuff, because I mean, a lot of the business of fiction is about withholding information from characters, you know, the definition of irony, you know, but I mean, it is that thing where so much of the mechanics of plot is about people having information withheld from them, you know, so even five years ago, the first thing in every thriller movie is people's mobiles stop working, you know, and I I, I, I think for novelists, that that stuff is an issue as well. And there are writers who are definitely doing it. Tim Morn is doing it. You've you've talked about him on the podcast. and Charlie Stross does it, but and I think Sean does it very well in Twin Maker. But it is actually, I, I think that is a genuine challenge for writers. You know, both both science fiction and mainstream writers. How do you represent that that kind of media saturated, immediate access of well, information? Find, finding world? new ways to turn it off. Yeah, yeah that's mm. right. You so, know, or not turn it off, which is actually kind of the challenge. Well, so keeping it's a much it on, greater challenge. You know, yeah. mm. Finding new crises, new problems. Mm. I don't know. They don't, don't reflect our own issues. I mean, there is so yeah. many. I see a lot of the privacy issues popping up in novels these days, and I and I've kind of can't help but feel without any real evidence that uh, that um, uh, we're, we're going through some kind of fundamental shift in our culture where we'll redefine, future generations will redefine privacy and how they relate to it. That'll well, be very well, different they, to... Well, they already are. Well, mm. that's very different to our generation. I think mm. I'm tired. I think uh, one I'm, of the things, I, uh, just picking your brains about this, because Jonathan, Jonathan brought this up. I didn't. Um, he brought up this TV program called Person of Interest, uh, which I obviously must be showing in Australia or Jonathan wouldn't have seen it. And it deals with two people, a guy who's invented some AI system. It deals with an absolute and total invasion of privacy, which is treated as heroic, essentially. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen one episode of it. Yeah, well, that's a, one episode pretty much is the template for the whole thing. But the idea behind that is that somebody who is spying on you 24 hours a day and has you picked out on all the... Uh, all, all, all the street cams and so forth and so on can be a hero, um, and this is this is at the same time that we're in the era of um, uh, of, of, of universal surveillance. Uh, so the, the the cultural shift, which I'm wondering if this is going to happen, is this you, the idea of universal surveillance, which has been a nightmare since Orwell at least, and you can trace that all the way through at least Paul Macaulay's um, whole wide world. Maybe shifting into where the idea we, we accept this invasion of privacy as long as it's the right people invading our privacy. I think that's always been the morality of technology. It's not that it exists, it's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That goes back to nuclear weapons and those sort of those you know, huge huge arguments over whether they should have been developed at all, whether they should be used. Yeah. It's the techn- It's that argument of is the technology in itself evil or is it how you use it? No, that idea of the surveilled world is at the centre of the um, most recent pair of Alistair Reynolds books as well. You know, this notion that everything is seen and that therefore kind of eliminates crime and a series of things like that. I, I actually thought you said something recently, Gary, I thought was incredibly interesting that I'd not thought about, which was about the notion that video phones were was something that had been around possible for a really long time but never caught on but you you suggested that you thought that the sudden rise of video phones was really about us reaching a point culturally where we were okay with that invasion of privacy you know that we didn't mind being seen anymore i thought that was really interesting i'd never thought about that in that no, way before. I, I believe that's true and there was, I, I could look up the exact details but uh uh bell telephone back in the 60s introduced a video phone, I think it was 65 or 67, and it completely tanked. I mean, they only were trying to start it in New York, I think, on a limited basis, but nobody wanted people seeing them in, in their living room. Um, and it, in other words, the technology really was there. The broadband wasn't the, it wouldn't have been as good as it is now, but essentially that was not something I think people were ready for in the 1960s. Well, I mean, the, the interesting 
reverse of that now is that people want to be seen doing mm. all kinds of things all mm. the time. Mm. So you have all, all the social media, which is actually about showing what you are doing. I mean, mm-hmm. showing sure. in terms of you know, photos, videos, and so on all the time, where you are, what you're doing. Um, and that's a generational change. Yeah, and you're seeing it's that in fun. books like uh, Scott Westerfeld's Extras, where uh, the main character is, is determined to create extra publicity, popularity hits by, by and the whole culture revolves around getting more popularity. And that's that's an extrapolation of that that works quite well, I think. Mm. It's, it's also a form of augmented memory almost, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. like, I went here for dinner, I saw this show, here are the 30, I mean, like, I, I go to a show and two hours later, here are the 30 videos from it, and I can always refer to those and share them with a friend so they can see the experience that I had. That seems to be a key part of it. Is this your cunning way to lead into... You no. Understand? Poor Bruce Springsteen concerts in the last week. <laughs> I, I actually was not going to go there, but thank you. Um, what I was going to say actually was, with the whole privacy angle, arguably the most media sa- social media saturated part of our community are our teens and tweens, and you're all writing young adult fiction and young adult science fiction or fantasy. Do you find that it impacts on the the kind of stories you can tell or would choose to tell? when you do try to write young adult science fiction? I'll let Sean answer that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, no, not it's not changing the kind of stories that I tell. I mean, I've been... My G. Dizica series, which came out years yeah. ago, is all about a culture where privacy is illegal and people yeah. use memory aids to, to just keep track of their long lifespan. So so I'm interested in this stuff anyway. But I, I mean, my writing is changing for different reasons for writing YA, but not because of this particular mm. thing. And I've had teenage boys in the house, and um, a lot of our friends have teenage kids, and it's fascinating to watch them and listen to them, and and that kind of informs my work. But it's uh, not a fundamental shift, I don't think. Mm. I actually think one of the, I'll come back to the YA thing in a moment, but in terms of the, I, I guess the way the elimination of privacy. I actually think one of the really interesting science fiction books, which is probably not getting read in science fiction circles in the last year or so, is the Dave Eggers novel, Circle, which is about uh-huh. a kind of Google-like company which is in the business of eliminating privacy. And it's a really a really interesting kind of satirical, you know, uh, satirical political fantasy. I mean, it's a bit long and it doesn't entirely work, but it is, uh, the the way it kind of, uses all of those uh, develops all those uh, that sense of the the coerciveness of a lot of this this mm. thinking about you know you it is actually irresponsible and selfish of you not to be publicizing your life you know is it's is actually both very convincing and very funny i i wanted to read that um, i i wanted to read that because one of the things that occurred to me when i read i've read a lot of reviews of it obviously and 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 Dave Eggers is one of those people who seems to be clearly sympathetic with the likes of us, or at least this this whole science fiction project. But it seems to me that that novel, which was getting an enormous amount of attention, was essentially an extremely contemporary novel. In some ways, it was less contemporary than a William Gibson novel. Uh, but by virtue of being da- Dave Eggers, it was recognized as as uh, something almost revolutionary in realistic mimetic fiction, except all it's doing is reflecting um, the actual condition of most young adults, at least today. Uh, does that make any sense? Um, it does, it does. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect yeah. sense. I, I think it's really interesting, because it's clearly a science fiction novel when you read it. Yes, you know, it although it's, I mean, it's set kind of now, you know, but it is clearly a science fiction novel, but it's a science fiction novel in that in that kind of brave new world kind of way. So it's that, right. it's, it's the kind of two minutes in the future, uh, this could actually be happening, but it, it, it's essentially satirical as well, you know. So it, it, it's, it, I think it's very clever. It, it, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's not turning up in kind of science fiction uh, circles, which is clearly not, you know. No, it hasn't gotten any attention at all, and I did not get a copy of it for review, and I'd like to read it because I did read his earlier book. Um, but there, but there is a sense, I guess, that um, that I, I gather from the reviews of that novel is that it's science fiction, very much in a Gibsonian way. When you read when you read the last two or three Gibson novels, you think something is science fiction or speculative, and then it turns out he says, no, that happened in Geneva last year. Uh, so you, science fiction is also the near past as well yes. as the near future. Well, in fact, that's the underpinning of um, Reimda, the Neil Stevenson novel, isn't it? Which is essentially exactly. a kind of science fiction novel set in the near past. You know, it, it, it's, 
with it, with it, yeah, and a little sidestep to the side as mm. well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Bruce Sterling did that novel about the millennium, which was written. It was a science fiction novel set in New Year's Eve. I'm, I'm forgetting which one it was now. Uh, set in New Year's Eve 1999. It was clearly a science fiction, but it was published in 2004, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, but there's no reason why science fiction necessarily shouldn't be completely contemporary. Because mm. it's a sensibility rather than a defined content, isn't it, really? Mm, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Did you deal with this stuff, Garth, when you were writing Confusion of Princes? I mean, science fiction YA novel. Well, I'm much more of a fantasy writer than I am a science fiction writer. So I'm often hearkening back rather than uh, looking forward. I mean, a Confusion of Princes is a space opera, so it's also much more towards the fantasy side of the spectrum than it is uh, than it is the science fiction side, I think, even though space opera is normally included in, you know, as science fiction. But I, I think a lot of it is it was is is really is a fantasy in in feel, even yeah. with the trappings of, of space well, opera. Well do you believe that your YA readers and you know a lot more about them than I do do YA readers make as much of a distinction between fantasy and science fiction as older readers tend to? Well, I think the whole YA apparatus, I mean, doesn't. And by that, I mean publishers, librarians, you know, booksellers. Because you, because YA is an overarching category, it can contain any genre. Mm. So you can, do well, anything, yeah. you can do anything within YA. And I think it's also important to note that probably at least half of the readership of YA uh, is in fact older adults and possibly even more than that so uh -huh. i think to to a degree it's not old you know it's not teenagers necessarily reading a lot of this stuff it's it's all kinds of people and but they're and they are attracted to the category probably because it's it's an overarching category where you can get all kinds of different books but it, you can do anything genre-wise, and that's that's one of the attractions of it. Mm. I think is that you can do, and with children's books too, you can you can do anything genre-wise, and you can mix and match your genres too, even within this, the same book. I, I think that's one of the things that is appealing for writers, and is appealing for readers as well. Is the risk of a book like Confusion of Princes that it becomes nostalgic? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, nostalgic for what, though, precisely? For, 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 for a particular kind of science fiction, I guess. Because, I mean, I've, I've given a lot of thought to what, what can potentially make up a modern young adult science fiction novel, right? And there's a lot of elements in Confusion that I think are the elements of modern science fiction. But the overall shape of it if you like is not that dissimilar to a a Heinlein style juvenile in some ways I mean different kind yeah, and, and, and intentionally so yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say a lot of the people reading it would have no would not sure, have read sure. any, any of the, the the precursors or any of the mm. ancestors of that book as it were so they'd be completely unaware of any any literary antecedents um so, and it's okay for a book to have literary antecedents. Well, I mean, the, the, the templates books. still work. That's, all yeah. books do. I'm, I'm yeah. just trying to think. Um, and I also think it's okay to be nostalgic, uh, as as long as that's not the primary, yeah. the mm. primary reason for the book's existence. Though, though possibly it was, to some degree, it was driven by my own nostalgia for that kind of book. Um, but I also think it, it has. Uh, again, it all comes back to the execution of it, how, how you actually do it, because even if you're following it very much in, the, in a tradition, you might mm. find uh, different ways of, of, of actually writing the book, of actually telling the story. It wouldn't be the same modes of, of uh, narration and, and so on. Well, see, as I read the book, I wondered, do you, did you, almost, do you almost have to find different kinds of payoff for the reader than the story would have provided had it been written back in the 50s as a space opera for a younger audience because the kind of things that they're going to res that are, that are going to resonate with a contemporary young adult reader would be different. Sorry, Jonathan, you're, Sorry. you're disintegrating me. Sorry. Sorry. I, I, yeah. yeah, I guess what I was asking was, 
do you think the kind of payoffs that a young adult reader today is looking for are, is different from the kind of payoffs that a reader back in the 50s would have looked for? Well, I think that the audience is probably more sophisticated in a lot of ways um, and not necessarily... Uh, I was trying to gather my, my thoughts here. Mm. I think it is a different kind of audience. It's an audience that has had so many more different forms of narrative that they've, they've experienced. They have a, probably a much wider view of different kinds of stories, now, whether intentionally or not, just from you know, the absorption of, mm-hmm. of story that's all around them. And there's a lot of things you, know, you would do in the 50s you just couldn't do now because it would be seen as, uh, as naive or, or simple. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 50s, I might have thought of it as honest. <laughs> I, I, I think we're using we may be using the term nostalgia in a couple of different senses here because I, I, my, my, I think in general that science fiction and fantasy writers have an advantage in writing young adult fiction in that adult readers will pick it up uh, you know Paolo Bacigalupi's young adult novels I'm sure were bought by all the people who bought the wind up girl and I'm sure the same thing sorry, uh, we've, happens we've with some of these sorry. we've lost you again Gary sorry oh, I'm sorry. oh dear um, I'm gonna is this is this any better? Uh, just talk talk again. Okay, I'm just I'm trying plugging my microphone into different parts of the. That is a bit better. I think it's actually just Skype. I think it's, it's, no, it's like the vagaries of the going. system. Yeah. Well, let me let me make my point and see if you can understand it at all. Um, I've got grandkids who are 18 years old, and for them, nostalgia is when they were 16. Mm. It has yes. nothing to do with the 1950s. Uh, adult readers who will pick up a young adult book if it's science fiction or fantasy might be making comparisons with Heinlein, but I, I don't think Heinlein would fly with young readers today. It's an interesting question. I, I don't think I, I'd like to, I would like to see it tested. I would, I would love to see the Heinlein juveniles, so-called juveniles, re-released with you know more attractive modern covers with introductions perhaps from you know contemporary known YA authors I, I actually think a lot of them would work if if they could connect with the reader I mean or made available to the readers I think they don't know about them so that's why they they, they don't see them and don't read them because young old young, young adults who are regular readers do read books from different periods they're not only reading contemporary sure, fiction sure. and my that's niece true. who's a wonderful reader when she was growing up when she was 15 she was reading literally anything that you put in front of her. So she's book, reading books from the 19th century, from the mid-20th century, um, romances, science fiction, thrillers, literary novels. So, you know, the, I think, again, it, it is an informed readership that is used to reading a book from the 50s and knowing it's from the 50s and not being surprised if it's sexist or, you know, um, colonial colonial themes are present without any sense of irony. I think uh, you, you could totally get away with it, with the right readers, I think. Mm-hmm. It may be we we'd had conversations about uh, I'm still having conversations about including some of the Heinlein juveniles in the Library of America series, and one of the questions was uh, if you have if you have a 1949 novel about a trip to the moon, for example, and the kids reading it have just been studying in school that landing on the moon is ancient history, something that happened before their parents were born. Uh, there's a disconnect there that I'm not sure how it would play out. Except for I think that that kind of book just moves into the alternate world fantasy. Mm. So mm. it's, again, if it's if the story is compelling enough, they'll read it and enjoy it anyway. When I was younger, yeah. I read was it the Simon Black series, Mission to Mars, Voyage to Venus, Journey oh, to Jupiter. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I knew none of it was real, but I still loved those books. You know? it, uh-huh. It's like my, my, my boys and you know, all their friends all love Tintin, and probably one of mm. the most favourite Tintins are Destination Moon and... And uh, hmm. what's the second one on the moon? Voyages uh, on the moon. Oh yeah. Well, the two Tintin books, you know, which predate, they're from the late fifties, uh, but it doesn't matter. It's an alternate universe. To, yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, Tintin lives in an alternate universe anyway. So I think a lot of a, a lot of those books, if if the story's strong enough and if if they're mm. interesting enough. It doesn't matter that, that it didn't happen that way. Because mm. a mission to the moon is still a mission to the moon, whether it really happened or not. Mm. You know, it can still be exciting, yeah. still thrilling, still be. Mm. See, the books I loved as a kid were the um, 
I mean, I love the juvenile hindlands as well. Um, I can still remember the kids skating on the canal in Red Planet. Red Planet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. I, the, 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 the Willard Price adventure books oh, yeah. with yeah. all the animals. Now, yeah. they would almost be historical novels or science fiction now because they talk about there actually being kind of undergraded environments out there you can go to. <laughs> yeah. But, God, they were. I, I loved them as a kid. Mm. I, books drop out of the culture <laughs> as well. I mean, I, I a couple of years ago, I found myself rereading a lot of Wyndham who – has been terribly out of fashion for years and years and years. And, mm-hmm. I mean, look. No, I think he could come back, though. He did come back. Yeah. I and mean, via other media, I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see more television, television yeah. and film adaptations coming back from, from the window yeah. oeuvre. And they tail, they tail off, certainly, in quality. But the, the, the kind of core of them that he wrote in about seven or eight years are brilliant, brilliant books. The Day of the Triffids, particularly. Yeah. And... But, I mean, you do have something quite interesting in them where The Day of the Triffids is quite a confronting novel in some way, not because of the kind of the kind of attitudes to to women and stuff like that, which are, you know... Of their time. Of their time yeah. and fairly unreconstructed, and I suspect fairly confronting for a lot of contemporary readers. But... Or just kind of weird. But it's that because they've been written in the immediate aftermath of World War II... There is this kind of people are so completely practical about the end of the world. They're just like, oh well, you know. So you can tell that you're already dealing with a kind of traumatized society that they're they're operating in, mm-hmm. where they just people just everyone dies and they're like, oh well, you know, well we'll just keep going, you know. Yeah. And then no, you get none of the behaviour you'd get in a contemporary book about that, where people yeah. just be, you know, dropping their bundles on a great. What's interesting, you, because I've been reading Neville Shoot and I just read On the Beach for mm-hmm. the very first time, and it's a you know it's an end of the world yeah. dystopian novel or post pre post apocalyptic novel. Everyone just accepts that they're all going to die. Mm. This radiation's coming. Everyone's slightly getting basically getting their acts together mm. before they die. But, and they but they but they're keeping on doing the things as if, as if they won't die. But there's no mass mm, panic. There's yeah. none of this sort of survivalist dog eat dog killing each other stuff is just people people getting their their affairs in order or or sort of doing the things they always wanted to do before the end comes Mm. which is quite a different it's a quite different and it's it's absolutely there in those windows and you can tell they're written in the kind of extremely traumatized aftermath of world war ii where you've had just kind of mass slaughter all around you for for years and years and years you know, so yes, I mean, it's the same same mm. sort of thing. It's but not that, like now where people would be fighting to survive and, you know. But I don't think they would. I think that that's a myth that, that we as a culture that haven't seen anything like that. Well, it's really in our culture. We like to believe that once sure. the social constraints are removed. It's a fantasy as well. It's a but, fantasy but as well. And, and th- that's right. And I, I, that's something that I've been trying to avoid in Twin Maker as well. You know, mm. the, trying to avoid that sense of the world is ending. Oh, my God, it's going to be a complete disaster. I, I, mm. I'm really trying to avoid straying down that territory because I don't think it feels, I think it feels real, but it's not real. And, mm. uh, and I, I'm just a little bit tired of it. I'm not tired of the zombie story where suddenly there are militia running around with guns. And, and it's not because I'm tired of zombie stories. I'm just tired of that portrayal of humanity, uh, which has never felt authentic to me. And anyway, so, and I, so I think what, what Wyndham is doing in his books so magnificently is portraying how it happened to him during the Blitz, but in a science fictional context. Mm-hmm. And, and whether he's trying to nut out what happened or whether he's just showing it the way it is. Mm. It, feels, it feels alien and strange to us, but very authentic. Would you include his later uh, young adult novels in that, the City of Golden Lead trilogy? They're John Christopher. John Christopher. Yeah, John Christopher. Yeah, they are fantastic. Which I also I just reread them last year. They're great. It was the same. (laughs) Just reread the Tripods and the Prince in Waiting trilogy too. Uh, Oh, really? I mean, he was extraordinary. He wrote... I mean, he died, what, two years ago, three years ago? Something like that. He was very old. He was living in Rye, where Henry James ended up living. But um, he um, he wrote, I mean, he's one of these people who wrote kind of 90, 90 novels under seven different names. And, and he was producing yeah. a novel every six weeks or three months or something, basically for his entire adult life. And when he died, he had got one of those wonderful obituaries where people say he was a very... He was a very kind of bracingly unconventional, by which you mean he was a terrible right-wing old bastard. Clearly. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but they have all these kind of polite ways of saying it Expressing in the obituaries, it. you know. But yeah, I, but I mean, some of the books he wrote is John Christopher. I mean, the, the Death of Grass is one of oh. the great kind of. It really is. 
apocalyptic novels. It's an extraordinary book. And The Lotus Caves, speaking of the moon. I mean, there's been talk yeah. about filming The Lotus Caves recently, which I Lotus oh, Cave, which would be interesting. Yeah, it'd be great. But it, mm. it is a very nostalgic view of the moon and the kind of things that happen on the moon that haven't happened yet and didn't mm. happen back then. And I think mm. it'd be superb. But I, I think it's interesting when you go back to uh, particularly older science fiction and you... And for me, it's often a process of rereading stuff that I read many years ago. So I have a kind of conception of what they are in my head. But you have that thing with, I reread some Clark recently. I, I haven't read Clark in 30 years, probably, <laughs> you know. And, you know, there's this, you have this sense in your head of what he is, you know. And then you get to them and they're actually these kind of strange, often slightly daffy and mystical kind of books. And there's this kind of really mystical edge to lots of them. Mm, absolutely. Yes. Which, yes, which I had completely forgotten about, you know, or, or not ever noticed when I was a kid, you know. And I think when that's present, they're the better books mm. or the more interesting books. But he was always writing himself into a mystical corner like that. To, and, and, and child, it wasn't Childhood's End the novel where he wrote that little – yeah. preface saying that the, the author doesn't agree with the ideas in this book <laughs> <laughs> i need to write some of those they sound great <laughs> i still think michael moorcock has the greatest dedication of any novel which is that he dedicates it to his creditors who are a constant source of inspiration <laughs> <laughs> that's speaking that's speaking truth isn't it yeah. can be I'm I'm curious as to why you're rereading Neville Shute because the other book of Neville Shute and I have not reread this ever since the first time uh, was before On the Beach. It was called In the Wet. I just, have, you I read, read it. have you looked at that? Yeah, I just read it the other day. I, I mean, I, I had never I had never read any Neville Shute. Uh, I'd never read A Town Like Alice. I'd never read On the Beach, and uh -huh. so I just I saw a paperback in a secondhand bookstore. I thought I've never actually read any Neville Shute, so I. I, I read a couple, and I thought, I actually really like these, and I want to read more. So I ended up reading all of them. And I also read his biography uh, called Slide Rule, and it, which is fascinating because it's not very much about writing. It's actually about his work as an aeronautical engineer on the R100 airship because that, that's what he did for 20 years. Well, he wrote a few oh, books okay. as well. He, uh, but he was mainly he was a stress calculator on 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 air on on, on airships and he had his own aircraft company as well which became a very big concern um so some of his books a lot of his earlier books are about early aviation and uh yeah, i mean he becomes mystical too later on the, the books become become much more mystical around the bend and so on which is really about the creation of a new religion uh but he's just a very he's a very good storyteller but one of the things i found interesting about him was a lot of his books are completely contemporary they're set in the, in the time that they were written they were published in the time they were written particularly as world war ii books uh -huh. uh, they're really interesting portraits of, of particular of, of time and place uh, and the depression in england and so on and the aircraft industry a lot of them are about it you know are set against the background of early aviation in the 20s and, and 30s but he's, he's a really good storyteller which i think is why mm. you know a town like alice is i don't know it's been filmed three times mm. or something and on the beach twice and um, and uh, another one, which I, I'd seen the film, but I never realised it was a Neville Shute novel. I've forgotten the, the book now. It's a Jimmy Stewart film where he's a, he's an aircraft engineer who's worked out that the wing of this new airline is going to fall off after it's going to fail, yeah, yeah, after fifteen thousand hours or something. And so no one believes him, and he ends up on the aircraft in question, thinking it's got you know five hundred hours safe. But then as he's on the aircraft, he discovers that. Actually, there was a, a flight that wasn't recorded or something. Right. It, it is <laughs> the going clock to, is ticking down. The clock is He's ticking. going to land the plane um, before the wing falls off. And <laughs> I'd seen the film, right. but the book, you know, they, they're great books. They're really clever stories. Uh, very ways, is One of those, like a lot of genre writers, uh, a very good storyteller, perhaps not an you know, amazing writer in terms of, of his prose, but he's, he's a great storyteller. Uh, which That's one of the things that struck, struck me about the couple of novels of his I read is that he seemed to be somebody who had a fairly decent career as a mainstream writer that always had uh, a kind of sensibility of, of, of writing science fiction. He, he, was, he was interested in writing about technical things. As I recall, In the Wet, it was kind of an anti-socialist screed, but it was nevertheless a futuristic story set decades in the future. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and he seemed to have gotten away with it. And I'm, I do remember that film you're talking about also, which was I'm about to look up at the moment. 
Oh. <laughs> I don't have a computer in front of me, but I, and I've forgotten the title of the book because I've read you know, 15 Neville Shute novels in the last year, I think, so they, they tend to, the titles merge together. But uh, I realised as I read the book that I, I had seen the film. Yeah. It had, it had a very no successful... Highway in the Sky. That's right. No Irony in the Sky. Yeah. That's not the title of the novel, though. No Irony. No, no Irony. <laughs> no Irony. Um, I think it's called something Highway in the Sky, I think, actually. Highway in the Sky? Um, doesn't matter. <laughs> They're both terrible titles. <laughs> There's lots of terrible titles, but uh, yeah. Lots Do you think that's a fate waiting for us, uh, just speaking to the writers around this table, that we're going to become more mystical and spiritual as we get older? Or do you think, I mean, we're all pretty yeah, hard-nosed atheists, are you, aren't we? Are you, are you saying I'm not mystical now? Sure. <laughs> you want to be, but you're not. <laughs> I'm a little bit mystical, I yeah, think, actually. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'll get more mystical after a few sea breezes. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually sitting in the lotus position and levitating three feet that's off the right. ground at the moment. I didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was a, there, there's been a theory in literary criticism for a long time that when writers get old, if they get old, they get mystical. I mean, you, 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 Shakespeare starts writing A Winter's Tale, and, 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 and uh, Faulkner writes a fable. Uh, uh, Steinbeck wrote a King Arthur story in his later years. Those, those strange late Janacek operas, Cunning Little Vixen and all of those, which were written exactly. by him when he was very old. You know, Maybe it does await, await us all. <laughs> I didn't notice happening to Philip Roth, I have to say. <laughs> it's perhaps not universal. <laughs> not universal, but he did write an alternate world novel late in life. He did. And I mean, and I think one of the things that's really fascinating about those late novels, which are, are really impressive, is the kind of. I think you do have that thing in them about. My dad's 80, and he talks about the way that, the, you know, his childhood is much more vivid to him now than when he was 40. And you, uh -huh. you read those late Roth novels, and it's actually the kind of, those moments of kind of eidetic recall of what it was like inside a shop in, in Newark in 1940, that is, yeah. you know, is so powerful and vivid and, uh, and really compelling to read, you know. It'd be quite handy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that means that means you're all going to get better as you get old. Yeah, I haven't noticed that happening. No, no, no. <laughs> the exact opposite. Well, you get you get different. I'm not sure about better. You get you get different. I mean, different, I think that's sure. And of course, this is always a, uh, a conversation writers don't necessarily love to have about whether they they're getting better or worse. Uh, Something Well, we some always imagine we're getting worse. I, I would no, I would throw out I would throw out the hypothesis that you become freer, um, and I'm, I'm basing that on a couple of people. The, the the oldest writer that I keep in touch with at all is Gene Wolfe, who's 83 or 84, and at some point, maybe 10 years ago, Gene just started writing whatever he wanted to write, and it's fascinating. Some of it works better than others, but there's a sense of energy there that he no longer has to be Gene Wolfe. He can write any novel he wants to write. And that has to be enormously liberating. Well, that's kind of side argument about, about, about late style, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, I was saying this kind of Saeed's argument about late style, which he talks about in the context of Beethoven and the, and the late work. Well, yeah, just, exactly. There's this kind of preparedness to take risks that you're not prepared to take when you're younger. I think, I mean, you often get technically more proficient, mm. but whether mm. whether that is balanced by a lessening of, of passion. And confidence of, as well. Of confidence changes. But, mm. but I think these things are always changing. Mm. So mm. Um, I, and it depends what you're doing. It depends yeah. what you're tackling as well. I also think one of the great dangers for writers, I mean, and if being writers, we all sit around, I imagine, spending a great deal of time worrying about what we can get wrong. Um, yeah. But I mean, I do think... I mean, everything. Everything, all the time. But you do have that thing where... In a sense, if you've got something that people really like, it's entirely possible for that moment in the culture to pass and for you not to move with it, in a sense. Mm. So you do have that thing yeah. about kind of writers who were really great 20 or 30 years ago, and you look at them and you go, well, I'm not sure that the books, in a sense, are any less good than they were 20 or 30 years ago. They just feel less relevant, less urgent. Well, the zeitgeist you know? changes. The zeitgeist yeah. changes around you, and yeah. if you don't... Yeah. 
in a sense, if you don't continue to change with the zeitgeist, can you tell that I'm talking through my own anxiety? <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, or something. We need to adopt the next position now, James. Yeah, yeah, but, but I mean, I do think that's a real issue. I mean, you see it with bands as well, you know, but it is it is that thing about kind of the times change and you don't necessarily change. Well, there's also the other aspect of that is the pressure from the publishing industry to do whatever worked last time. Mm. Yeah. Right. So you can also be stuck in a, in a rut and have the zeitgeist mm. change. Uh, there's all kinds of different pressures mm. at work, so oh. more things to get anxious about. I, I, I've been admirably resistant to the pressure to do the same thing over and over again, and it generally <laughs> has not worked to my advantage, I've found. <laughs> well, but the zeitgeist comes and goes. The zeitgeist comes back around. Wide ties come back. Uh, yes. I was talking to a friend of mine teaching a, a university course on – she was teaching a course on animal studies. She wouldn't mind my mentioning who were this kids Johnson, and – it turns out that Clifford Simak's story, Desertion, is terrific among newer students. Uh, oh. They think it's absolutely fresh. It's absolutely terrific. It was written in, what, 1940 or something. Um, and somehow what Simak was doing in his, at least in his city stories from the 40s, seems to have come back into fashion in some way. And it's, it's great when that does happen. And I'm always particularly pleased when an, an author that, whose work I love comes back into, in, mm. comes back into fashion again. It's a... Mm-hmm. It's it's a wonderful thing, um, and you always hope that this will happen to your own work. <laughs> yeah, right. you can stay alive until it happens. Well, a that, a, that well, it won't be fashion in the first place, and b yeah. if it does, it will come back again. The great the great trick with a writer for writers, I always think, is when you die. There is a moment after you die where generally your work is people talk about it for a while, and then you fade. And then you need that thing where 10 or 15 years later it gets picked up again. You know, the question with Doris Lessing is whether in 10 or 15 years Doris Lessing will have a kind of Patrick Whiteian comeback. Or an F. Scott Fitzgerald Mm. comeback. Or an F. Scott Fitzgerald. Do do you know what I mean? There is something about the kind of the after-death dip. (laughs) And you need to come back from the after-death dip, you know. Some, some forward planning there, James. Yeah, I, I don't think I've been. Uh-huh. Had a, I think I'm. Need someone to be your Mendelssohn, like Bach almost disappeared. Yeah, and it was well, Mendelssohn yeah. who championed him, and, and we assumed that he was famous throughout his lifetime, but he wasn't. So no, no, he that. wasn't famous at all. I, I mean, Mendelssohn, in fact, the great moment was he did the Matthew Passion, didn't yes, he? He did a, right. a big mm. performance of it, but yeah, Bach was a very minor mm. composer. His children were more famous than he was. Yeah. 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 Here's a mordant question coming toward the end because we are running past our time but for all for all of you because you were, we're th- talking about how you remembered how your reputation is is it a good or a bad thing to think that the new york times may already have a canned obituary for you <laughs> i dream of that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's highly unlikely but well, i, I dream of say it. it's kind of irrelevant because you'd be dead That's right. um, but uh, certainly I, it would, I guess it would be a mark of your Visibility within the field that they did have a canned obituary, mm. so it would be a, a mark of some distinction, I imagine. Mm. As long as they weren't in any hurry to use it and were hoping to hasten your demise so they could get their death. Well, there's a story there, I think, isn't there? The preemptive <laughs> obituary writer. Well, no, I, there are people who do that, and I know I, I, I've gotten twice. I've gotten calls from the New York Times about uh, preparing an obituary for somebody that wasn't dead, and I it was very upsetting. Well, they hold it. In the, they hold them in the morgue. They actually have a morgue. They call it the morgue, don't they? Where they yeah. Exactly. I have the first Clive James's obituary, which they're sitting on at the moment. You know, wow. wrote it like a year ago because he's been sick. You know, uh. I struggle. That's probably an incredibly bad taste. But you know, um, uh, but I mean, yeah, they they come to you to do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. yeah. But then, how much would you like to read your own New York Times obituary? I'm not sure I would. No, I'd like to believe I was, you know, successful enough to have a. Are you suggesting yeah. an afterlife, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a not. So much that it's like even if you allow that you are well enough known or significant enough to have such a thing, is it ever likely to actually correspond with your own view of your life? And would it actually be somewhat disconcerting to read that view of you? I think it'd be it disappointing if it did correspond exactly because I think the the great thing about reading your own mm. reviews to a certain extent, but things like it's just being surprised in how people perceive you, and I think it's good to be. But we have that now. I mean, you mm. look at Wikipedia or anything, and think, yeah. well, <laughs> well, that's yeah. true. Right? But that's the great. I mean, that's the great issue for biography. You know, that kind of who is the person who's being recreated. <gasps> What is I mean, look at Johnson. No one reads Johnson anymore. Yeah, everything we know about Samuel Johnson is filtered through Boswell, wow. you know, who is this extraordinary kind of innovative biographer who, who wrote this extraordinary biography of Johnson, you know. But is that what Johnson was actually like? Yeah. 
None yeah. of us have any idea. No. And does it matter? Not really, Once, I wouldn't think. Oh, it doesn't. I know. Boswell's life is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And uh, Boswell's wonderful as well because he's this kind of dreadful, and he's, he's a kind of amazing but kind of appalling character. Um, and, you know, you have, the, you have this thing with him where, I mean, he was this total grifter, total social climber, and all sorts of things like that. But then this extraordinary writer, there's a wonderful story about him going to see a hanging and then appearing in a brothel several minutes later and saying, find me a woman, I must have a woman, I have an image in my head, I must get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, those, those were the times. Yeah. Very different times. Ah, uh, typical day at work for all of us, I'm sure. <laughs> it's a very strange novel, which you might be interested in, by Marcel Thoreau. Paul Thoreau's son called Strange Bodies, which is about a character who, it's a science fiction novel about a character who has Samuel Johnson's mind implanted into him. Uh, I <laughs> think I've read that. No, I've been right on the edge of reading it for about a year, Gary. I read his last one, the Far North one, um, which I thought oh, okay. was... Oh, okay, that was the last one before this, yeah. Yeah, um, which I thought was really interesting. I was really tempted to read it. It's good, is it? It's interesting. <laughs> good, but not, good, but not well done. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Even better. The compliments keep flowing. Well, on that, we may be getting towards the end of our podcast, Gary, I think. I think we might be, but it's been delightful. We could go on for another hour. I'm sure we could. But maybe we should sort of thank, sort of in order, we would thank uh, James Bradley for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you very much, James. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Garth, for coming along. We're looking forward to Clariel and wherever we see you next. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys too. And Sean with Twinmaker and Crashland coming up and many, many other things. Hopefully, will, will I see you in Perth? Uh, I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to communicate more on that topic. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, be good to see you. Well, until Thanks. then, thank you all very much. We'll hope to talk to you soon. And as always, Gary, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Goodbye. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. See you. Bye. And with that, we are...